this economic crisis is like a cancer. 18 to 24 year olds, there's only 54% of us that are actually working right now. There will always be economic factors that we can't control. Even shelling out the big bucks for a brand name school doesn't guarantee anything in a recession. Warning that the economy is very weak. And that the U.S. may already be in a double dip recession. What I would say to everybody is, get prepared. Get ready! Are you ready? No doubt! What you are about to hear is the unauthorized. Oh wait, I'm not even allowed to say that. Uncensored. Oh! Blink! Unfair Edge with Jonah Jones. Surprise. Ten cliches we live by that are just wrong. Throughout the course of our lives, we're hit with one-line advice that masquerades as wisdom and is presumptuously taken to be the quickest, surefire fix to any problem. Meaningless, shallow advice like be true to yourself and do what you love nonsense. These phrases appear in songs and movies and make up the overarching subtext of stories and novels and are blatantly spat out in the last three minutes of a sitcom episode. These platitudes are the real poison. I can't go back and change all the events in your life, but I can flush these platitudes down the toilet for you while giving you a sturdier seat for it. You see, I despise platitudes, and that's largely what motivated me to write this. I read so many of these change-your-life books and was bombarded with cliches that did nothing for me. Not only do I promise not to use them, I promise to smash them to bits. Now, it's not that all advice we're given is wrong or that these particular nuggets of wisdom are false. The problem is that They've been compacted down into snippy little default responses to almost any problem we face. Advice is like a pill in the sense that when you come across one, you really should examine it before you ingest it to be sure it fits the particular problem you're ailed with. Such as this. Number one, we're told to never compromise your principles or stop standing up for your beliefs. We fall for this one because the hero in every story lives by this rule. If Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King compromised their principles and stepped down from their convictions, where would the world be today? It feels like a sin to deny the world a voice that strongly articulates a point that others do not know enough about to find acceptable. But ask yourself this, whoever you did not vote for in this past election, do you want them to continue to fight for what they believe in? Should the most brutal dictators and violent revolutionaries continue their fights to rid the world of those that are not mind clones of them? Of course not. You may hear it in yourself that the oppression against you is not compromised of people that fight what they believe in. It's in our nature to see them only as the embodiments of evil that seek only to exterminate what's right and just. Instead, we should say, never stop fighting for your beliefs, but never stop scrutinizing your beliefs. The way you see the other side is exactly how they'll see you. You're not a hero to them. You're just a zealot set in your ways, closed off and repeating platitudes to reassure yourself. What did Lincoln and King have to do to get their way? Contrary to how we may view them, they compromised, because they understood it was the only way that the human race can function. Lincoln expended all of his political capital and his life on the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, and argued with radical abolitionists like Lloyd Garrison, who who wanted immediate reparations for slavery. Dr. King expended his life by pledging non-violence in his marches and demonstrations. He also wasn't too popular with others fighting for his cause, like Malcolm X. There were blacks that hated MLK because they thought he was just too wimpy. 
The reason why these two men were successful with their cause is because they were internally examining them to make sure they were the right and just causes. As Lincoln once said, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. Now contrast that with the most uncompromising and perhaps the worst president of all time, Woodrow Wilson. Malcolm D. McGee writes of Wilson up operating under belief that God had destined him to be president and was an agent of God in everything he did. Therefore, he could do no wrong in his mind. The other two were constantly looking for God, or what is most moral and right, while Wilson was on a self-proclaimed mission from God, no longer looking. The KKK, which was brought back into this country under Woodrow Wilson, the Nazi Party, the terrorists, and Fred Phelps's small sad family believe they were fighting for the highest moral principles. This isn't to equate all beliefs and those that fight for them as one in the same. You know, moral relativism is just some bullcrap that immoral people came up with to let themselves off the hook. But quite the opposite. Those that are truly right will always be seeking to make sure that they actually are right. Whereas those who couldn't care less to examine their beliefs will often find themselves on the wrong side of the conflict. While you should never stop standing up for what you believe is right, you should also never stop searching for what actually is right. The second one. We're told to always speak your mind and truth to power. When I was 19, I dated a particularly difficult girl. Now bear in mind, this was a time that was just a year after my crummy high school experience when girls laughed at me and bullies walked all over me. So I felt there were very few women in my league at the time. But this girl was a slob that never cleaned up after herself. She complained and condescended to me constantly, took everything I said the wrong way, and pigged out on junk food like it contained her life force. To say that I was unhappy in this relationship is quite the understatement. When I spoke about this to my closest friends at the time, they told me like any good friend would, just speak up and tell her how you feel. No one will ever know there's a problem or that they're hurting you if you remain silent. Look her right in the eye and say so. So after I found the nerve, I did just that. After which, the girl came to the realization that she was living a self-destructive lifestyle, mistreating me, and apologized. Yeah, that did not happen. Instead, she put down her McDonald's, not permanently, of course, to scream at me with greater intensity. There I found myself with lower self-esteem as I'm being dressed down in a greasy fast food dump. The problem was amplified by my speaking up. So what does this mean? Am I never to speak up again? and just accept the fact that the world will always walk all over me? No. Instead, say what you feel, but don't be shocked if no one listens. Just because you sincerely feel it, doesn't mean it will cause others to feel that way too. At any given time in our history, there have been a large number of people that felt the president should have been jailed because they signed a petition. But the action taken from that? Nothing. Putting on a pair strong enough to get you to speak truth to power should also be strong enough to forewarn you that its effects will most likely be minimal. This particular piece of advice, the speak your mind, is often viewed as something courageous because it's contrary to what we're raised to do. As kids, we're told to act a certain way, not speak of certain things, like oh, no bathroom talk at the table, or perhaps your parents told you never to say the swear word they had just uttered. Quite often, when you were a child or an adolescent, you may remember coming out of an argument where you firmly stated precisely how you feel and still lost because the adult you were arguing with said, I've lived longer than you, so I know more. Or, because I said so. And supposedly that point is so much more valid that it wipes its butt with yours. Speaking your mind, you feel is great advice because it feels 
so liberating the first 15 seconds after you try it. But after that 15 seconds is up, you're back to feeling enslaved or subservient. A few years later, when you're a kid in college, in the phase where you feel like you know absolutely everything and the whole world would be so much better if everyone just did as you thought, the rest of the world still laughs at you or ignores you. The cycle repeats itself, causing you to believe that it's best to just keep your thoughts confined in your head. What you really should be doing is putting your thoughts, ideas, and feelings out there in a diplomatic way, but also carry along with it the expectation that no one will care. Yes, you have a freedom of speech, but not an entitlement to an audience. The cause of much bitterness when the initial liberating feeling that comes with speaking your mind is quickly followed by the realization that the world isn't going to conform to your commands. The third one, we're told to leave your past behind you. My past really sucks. I was addicted to pills, cigarettes, and booze. The girl I thought was my girlfriend was just using me for my money, and I was a jerk to everyone around me because I was so bitter. After I had wised up, I needed to do my own little apology tour visiting all the people I hurt. The most common response I got from them was, Oh, it's good to see you own up. Let's move on now and leave all that in the past. Half of that is right. You've got to move on. And even before you atone for the wrongs you've done, forgiving yourself is an important first step. Otherwise, the guilt will just eat you up to the point where the forgiveness from others will have no effect on you. Forgive, yes. But forget, no. There's no shame in having a hall of shame for all the things that made you feel so crappy about yourself in the first place. Instead, we should say, own up to your mistakes, but don't dwell on them. Constantly dwelling on your own shortcomings puts you in the same category as the type of person that constantly dwells and touts how great they are, a self-absorbed jerk. You end up living inside your own head too much to realize that there's a world outside your head and other people in it. The trick isn't to erase your memory. But make peace with your memory. One thing that really gets on my nerves is parents that spoil their kids for the sole reason that they want them to have the things they never had. Now to that I ask, what did not having those things do to you? Would having them have made you a better person? Did you manage to survive without them? Is it possible that you were a better person for not having them because it taught you patience and that life isn't always about getting everything you want? As the great philosopher Mick Jagger told us, you can't always get what you want. The suffering you went through before, as well as all the mistakes you've made previously, can be turned upside down and used to help you to avoid future suffering and mistakes. The second attempt to finding the right answer to a tough question is made easier by remembering how you originally got the wrong one the first time. Putting your past behind you may feel temporarily liberating, which is why it seems like such wise advice, but it comes back to bite you on the butt. What kind of people often ask you to forget the past? People that want to manipulate you. It's like when an ex-lover wants to get back together with you and asks you to forget the past and start all over again. What they're really getting at is they want you to forget about all the bull crap they did to you. Then, when you're back with them, the bite on the butt comes when you're rudely reminded of why you split up with them to begin with. Fourth thing is, we're told to trust no one. You can't rely on anyone these days. Because we've all been screwed at some point, it's easy to assume that advice which presumes the worst about people is true. In my early 20s, I lived under the assumption that all human motives fell into two categories. Openly bad and secretly bad. And that's classic cynicism. It's much worse when you hear it from someone older than you because we think, well, they've been around for a while and probably know what they're talking about. I guess that's really how the world works. 
and it works by everyone trying to step on everyone on their way up. The problem is that this usually comes from jaded people that would prefer to look at themselves as victims instead of subject themselves to the consequences of their own choices. And if they are older, once they become jaded, they often stay that way. Since they've been cheated on more than one occasion, they think they're doing you a service to tell you that everyone is out to cheat you, thereby making them sound sincere and believable when they say it. The truth is that this is just their own coping mechanism for their crummy situation. It's easy to say I've been cheated than it is to say I should have saw that one coming. I know this all too well with my own personal experience. I wish I could say that that one girl back in college that was using me for my money was the only one that did, but I can't. It was a trap I fell for far too many times despite the mini-man on my shoulder warning me that it was another user. There's nothing wrong with keeping an eye out for the ill motives of others, but to base your life on the misguided belief that the only person you can trust is yourself is going to do more than make things lonely, but also make you miserable. This kind of thinking is an ego trip of pride that comes before the fall. Instead, we should say, know how to spot the untrustworthy. Perhaps you heard that people were made to be loved, and things were made to be used, and that trouble occurs when things are loved and people are used. Focus more on that first part, that people are made to be loved. The whole point of making friends is that life is hard with all the crap being thrown at you, so you need some close colleagues to wipe the crap off that spot on your back that you can never reach, unless you want to go through life stinking. How much of a narcissist do you have to be to think that you're the only person with any shred of moral character? How can you be anything but miserable when you live under the idea that everyone else is out to rip you off? The solution isn't to leave your firstborn in the care of every random stranger you meet, assuming they're not going to leave them on the curb or worse, but to judge each person on their own individual merit. On one extreme end, you have people that are cynics. On the other extreme, you have people that are too lazy to evaluate each individual by the fruit they produce. In the end, they are both lazy. The fifth thing is, we're told to live in the now. Live for today. It could be your last. Perhaps you've had a friend who had someone close to them die of cancer and now they're acting all wild like there's no tomorrow because they saw how fragile life is before their very eyes and wanted to grip onto it harder than a stripper grabs onto a stage pole. You ask them if their behavior is perhaps a little too risky when they sign up for skydiving, bungee jumping, and get wicked drunk before they take both dives. But they respond with, I'm living in the now. I could die tomorrow. Let's live each day as if it could be your last. Here we go again with that advice that sounds initially liberating upon hearing it. Now, do you see where this could potentially go wrong? I mean, look at me, for example. If I didn't have to worry about tomorrow... I'd empty out my bank account to get front row seats to a Katy Perry concert so I could jump her on the stage and have my way with her and forget all about the kids that would be subjected to seeing that. Living like there's no tomorrow is to live as if there are no consequences. Is there any action you can take that doesn't carry a consequence? And if you think no one gives a damn, try missing a couple payments. Instead, what we should say is make each day count. Now, no, you're not promised tomorrow. But if it does come, you want it to be easier than today. And that's the whole point people are trying to make when they say work hard now so that each day can be better than the last because you did all the hard, undesirable tasks the day before. With this mindset, what you do right now can be used for future benefit, whereas the previous mindset will only result in future detriment. If you spend all of your time preparing for a future that you're not guaranteed, 
it's quite easy to feel like you've thrown your life away, and often the future you prepare yourself for will never come. What I'm doing right now with my life, I never would have imagined myself doing two years ago, let alone ten. But you know who spends each day living in the now? Kids. And the reason they get to is because they have other people taking care of their needs. The sixth one is, we're told to just tell your crush how you feel. Everyone knows this one all too well. There's that one person we see at work or school that's just everything we would want in a significant other. There are other people we can be content living with, but this one person is one we can't live without. The fact that they don't know you exist, let alone how you feel, is torture. So the TV, film, and music industry tell us that it's more than a crime to keep this all bottled up. The happy endings suggest that when you make this confession to them, they'll suddenly discover mutual feelings they never knew they had for you. They'll appreciate the honesty and flattery. But in real life, revelations like this will cause all further interactions to become extremely awkward and ruin any potential that was possibly there. Instead, what we should say is, find out how they feel. You may have had a whole life planned out with them in your head, but you have to remember that they had plans of their own too. You may feel like you can't live without them, but all this time they've been living without you just fine. And you know what else can't live without something else? A parasite. Not that they will look at you like you are one, but confessing something like that to someone that doesn't know a thing about you isn't taken as a compliment. You may be expressing love, but they only hear of lust. It's just creepy. And let's say you do know them very well, and have always had a crush on them, but could never bring yourself to confess it. There's a reason why you couldn't, because it could damage the current relationship you have. Being honest and candid with your feelings and intentions is always good, but words carry consequences. You're taking a risk. So if you really do love them, why would you risk them? Why not try a smarter way to go after them? Let's say they do, by some miracle, tell you they reciprocate those feelings. Let me be the first to tell you that those kinds of people are not the kind you want, because they are the type that will use those feelings to manipulate you. I know this from experience. They see you not as an equal, but as a personal slave for their pleasure. Without warning, they ask you for rides, money, and other material things. Because what are you going to do, say no? Not after that big revelation you just put forth. The seventh thing is, we're told, you gotta stand up for yourself and fight, not take any crap from anyone. One of our most natural inclinations is to treat others the way they treat you. When the bully is down, the temptation to kick them is too much to bear. Someone gives you a little verbal jab. You feel like that must be called out and returned tenfold, so they know never to do that again. The slightest poke at you must be met with great resistance, otherwise they'll think they can get away with it, or perhaps worse in the future. I've had my fair share of bullies. They did things to me I'd rather not think about, let alone talk about. Perhaps the most agitating thing, though, that I've had to put up with was from my days of the single life, searching for a soulmate, and I feel like I'm starting to connect with a potential only to hear her tell me, oh, I want someone like you, just not you. That really softens the blow of rejection now, doesn't it? By prefacing it with a phrase that demonstrates how irrational you are. Or that senior coworker that points out all the things you do wrong. The jerk of a boss that gave you the insufficient training to begin with. The list goes on. Instead, what we should say is, know what's worth the fight and when it's right. While it might give me some satisfaction to punch all those people in the face with brass knuckles, how long will that satisfaction last? And what will it cost? My job, my reputation, and my clean criminal background checks. 
Those girls who say such insulting things are a dime a dozen. There are many others that would say no such things. And in today's world, it's easier than ever now to meet them and find out precisely what they like. That rude coworker, he's not going to be there forever, and probably neither will you. If he's like that to a new person, he doesn't even know, chances are he's like that to everyone, and that will isolate him. Same goes for the boss. If all he does is pee on his employees, he will have such a high turnover rate, which doesn't make his job performance as a manager look too good. Perhaps the only person on that list to stand up to is the bully that really has it out for you. That's the time to fight. Because if YouTube view counters have taught us anything, everyone likes to see the bully get his butt whooped. The eighth thing is, we're told to never take no for an answer. Moses kept demanding Pharaoh to free his people and was told no ten times. But he finally turned him around. Thomas Edison failed 10,000 times to make a light bulb work, but finally got it right. Then we're even told this wisdom through stories about people who did give up, only to later regret it, like R.U. Darby, who gave up digging gold during the gold rush, when it was only three feet away from where he stopped digging. I'm quite guilty of this one myself, because when I catch myself saying the words I can't, I remind myself in my head that I can't means I won't. In a tug of war, there is a winner and there is a loser, but how graceful is the one that loses? More often, they're resentful. Instead, make sure that no is their final answer. With the stories of Edison and Darby, we've confused persistence with persuasion. These men were working on something as opposed to working on someone. With Moses, he had the power of God behind him. When was the last time you saw a burning bush? The truth is, we have an automatic reaction to resist all things that we feel are being imposed on us. How many atheists do you know of that had parents that dragged them to church? How many kids back in your teenage years chose to be goth over the popular high school tropes? How many things have you done in your life simply because others told you not to? People need to feel like they've made their own decisions. This persistence is romanticized as the never-say-die principle. Salesmen are supposed to go deep-sea fishing if all they have is a rowboat. When there's a job you want real bad, you can't just knock on the door, you're told. You have to kick it down. Apply, call, and call again. But when you do that, you're not seen as persistent, but as a pain in the butt that just keeps interrupting the workday. They think if you're this annoying early on, you'll be even worse later on. Instead, apply for the job, and call them up once. If you get the interview, don't call them after because they probably told you, we'll call you. Instead, just send a thank you note to the person that interviewed you. That's not annoying, but it is impressing. This also applies to that crush of yours that is right now hesitant to give you a chance, but still somewhat considering it. When showing persistence to get them, you're not really appearing as passionate or loyal to them. You just appear desperate. If your will, wants, and opinions are as right as you think they are, others will notice them on their own without your persuasion. The ninth thing is we're told it doesn't matter what other people think. This one is particularly difficult to break down because some of the best advice I ever heard was a far better paraphrase of this from Srinivas Rao's book, The Art of Being Unmistakable. In it, he said, Worrying about what other people think is a jail of our own creation, and the irony of it is that those other people are in the same jail with us. How can anyone argue with such wisdom? It's worded so perfectly that it's immediately taken in like a gospel, and I won't argue with it. Well, not all of it. The phrase is halfway right, but it's the wrong half that we take as gospel. Certainly, you don't let your peers deter you from your dreams. I turned deaf ears to every boss that told me I couldn't live without them. 
Every bully that said I would never amount to anything. Every girl that said I wasn't good enough for her. And every teacher that told me I was stupid. But you can bet your butt that I cared about what my past girlfriend's parents thought of me, the guy on the other side of the desk at a job interview, or the cop that pulled me over. Instead, what we should say is, when taking criticism, consider the source and how much they really care. One of the most liberating and encouraging revelations you'll ever have is when you realize that most people just won't care. Now sure, they might have a cheap laugh at your expense when they see your overweight butt soaked in sweat just from jogging down the street, but five minutes later, they'll have forgotten all about you. They're not going to snap a picture and mock you all over social media. And if they do, they'll probably get trolled. People aren't all as bad as you think, and the ones that really are bad don't care enough to put much effort into their hurtful words or bad deeds. But here's the thing about this advice that I'm really annoyed with. People are misusing it and abusing it. Perhaps you've seen this quote posted as a Facebook status update or a tweet that they live by. If you can't handle me at my worst, then you sure as hell don't deserve me at my best. Which comes from Marilyn Monroe. Now this isn't to pick on one gender, but I do see it more often posted by women. I'm sure there's an equivalent male phrase that's just as douchey, but since I'm a guy I'm going to have to take this on from the male perspective. This line of jerk-faced thinking, masquerading as profound wisdom, is nothing more than childish narcissism. If people don't like the awful things you do, then they don't deserve the pleasure of knowing you? As if they're all just inferior oafs not capable of appreciating it. So if you're demeaning, belittling, insulting, overdramatic, insensitive, and acting like an immature spoiled brat, we should just put up with it. Because when you're having a good day and are at your best, that compensates for the misery you put us through. Now let's reverse the roles here. Suppose a man was sweet and loving, affectionate, and a provider for his woman. When he's in a good mood, he's a dream come true for her. But when he's in a bad mood, he's verbally abusive, breaks things, and does all sorts of things that scare the living daylights out of her. Is she supposed to just overlook that and pray his mood passes by soon so he can go back to being Prince Charming? Would you even want to go back to being all lovey-dovey with someone after they had done that? There's never an excuse to be abusive. Not physically, emotionally, or verbally. Maybe we don't take things that far off the deep end when we're at our worst, or in our moments of not caring what other people think. Maybe we're just snarky or sarcastic. But consider the person on the receiving end of that. How well do you know them? Do you know if they are particularly sensitive to that type of treatment? If that's how you let off steam, are you really going to feel it? Are you really going to feel it was a good vent when you later find out that you didn't extinguish your grief, but only transferred it to someone else? And when others confront us about our behavior that they find frustrating, an easy fallback position is to think, I don't care what others think, this is who I am. But to say, this is who I am, is intellectual dishonesty. Because you are who you choose to be. It's safe to say that everyone could make some smarter choices. The last one is, we're told to always follow your heart. The Oscars of 1999, as they do every year, really ticked me off. There were two contenders for Best Picture, Saving Private Ryan, which every American needs to see, and Shakespeare in Love, which very few people care to see. The former carriers the theme, Fulfill Your Duty, and the latter carried the theme, Follow Your Heart. Guess which one got the Oscar? Hollywood loves telling us to chuck our responsibilities and do only what makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. At any time, Tom Hanks' boys could have abandoned the mission to find Private Ryan, Heh, even Private Ryan himself told them to give up on him. But they fulfilled their duty no matter what. 
but apparently that's not as appealing to the Academy as Kevin Spacey throwing his family obligations aside to pursue an illegal sexual fantasy with a minor in American Beauty, or Kate Winslet stiffing her family with her dead father's debts by cheating on her wealthy fiancé and running off with a peasant that has nothing to offer in Titanic. I mean, in the new Star Trek, even super-logical Spock tells himself to put logic aside and do what feels right in the end. There's just no escape from this nonsense. You want to know what following your heart really looks like? Watch Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. Watch how the obsession that James Mason puts himself through over the girl he loves so dearly ruins his life. Instead, what we should say is your heart and your mind must work together. When you read between the lines, the words follow your heart are really saying shed yourself of reason and shut down your thinking. Notice, they never tell you precisely just what your heart is. I mean, are they referring to your blood-pumping organ? Of course not. Your strongest emotional feelings? Well, how often have those got you into trouble? These emotions you are feeling are never meant to be the basis for your decision-making. They are largely side effects of temporary circumstances, such as how well-rested you are, how much nourishment you've had that day, or how long it's been since someone really got on your nerves. It's all about the mood you're in, and what in life should mood determine. Are you ever in the mood to go to school, to go to work, to do chores, or to cook? And fellas, you back me up on this one. Your woman saying no to sex because she's not in the mood is certainly not a rational decision to you. Instead, when you're making a decision, there needs to be a debate going on back and forth in your head between your heart and your brain. And the great thing about that is you'll always make more rational decisions because your brain has home field advantage. Each piece of advice on this list has a degree of truth to it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have lasted as long as they have. But with every piece of wisdom passed on to you as rock-solid truth, ask yourself, is that the whole truth? These nuggets of wisdom were worded with the best of intentions, of course, but the application of them is all that matters. In the complex world we live in, nothing is greater music to our ears than simple rules to live by. We want things broken down into parts that are easier to digest and memorize. Perhaps if life seems simple, or the rules you live by do, you're probably not really living. You have to remember that these rules were passed down from an older generation to a younger generation and taken as gospel because of that. But what really could be going on is just this. A woman prepares a brisket for her husband by cutting off both ends. Her husband, being a constantly hungry man, is riddled with why she always does this. After years of seeing her do this, and still baffled as to why, he finally asks her. And her only reply is, that's how my mom cooked it. Luckily for him, her mom was coming over for dinner that night, and he asked her about it too. She gave him the same reply, that's how my mom cooked it. The husband wouldn't be able to sleep that night unless he got a rational explanation for this. So they called grandma and asked her why she cut the ends off the brisket before cooking it, and she replied, because my pan was too small. This has been The Unfair Edge with Jonah Jones. See more at anunfairedge.com. This audio was made possible by the Author Insider Club. The first time I tried publishing my books on Kindle, I crashed and burned. Now, part of the reason was because I had no idea how to format the book for the Kindle device. I just uploaded the Word file and thought people at Amazon would do all the work, and I was wrong. My books ended up being unreadable because the formatting was just so messy and completely out of whack. Now, thankfully, I was able to correct it before anyone bought it. 
because an early bad review on Amazon could ruin your hopes for becoming a bestseller, or even just a seller. I was able to fix it all with the Kindle template made by the Author Insider Club. With this downloadable product, you get a pre-formatted Word file, and all you have to do is type your book's manuscript into it. And once you upload it to the Kindle store, it looks just as good as it did when you were typing it in Microsoft Word. They also give you a library of exclusive training videos and premium content loaded with tips on self-published authorship. You get all of this for $87. Check them out at an unfairedge.com slash author inside.